All right. Thank you, Rook. It's a lot. A lot, lot going on in John 6. We're still going through John, uh, and if you have, have missed that, then uh, feel free to grab one of these little books, right? It's just the Gospel of John. We've got a ton of them over there, and we'll talk more about that later. But uh, we spent a year, you know, reading through the whole Bible together, and that was just such a crash course in everything in the Bible, so much. And we decided to say, man, if the Bible's one unified story that points to King Jesus, then we should slowly read through the words of Jesus, because Jesus says he has all authority in heaven and earth. Jesus says he's life. Jesus says he is God. He's everything, right? We say every week, Jesus is everything. Say, Jesus is everything. That's right. And so we're going to keep going through that, wrestling through that. So I'd encourage you to grab one of these, like we say every week, man, my words come and go. Uh, I might say just something really great and profound that just digs in and you remember forever and you're telling your great grandkids you're going to paint it on your wall and it's like probably not though like but the words of the lord last forever right so that's what we do get out the bible we're going to be reading through that this this section's tricky i'm going to work and talk at the same time calm down uh this section's tricky because it it contains probably my favorite verse in the entire bible um and i don't know what's on here from before calm down oh good it's empty uh but it's tough when you're getting ready to teach something that has like your favorite verse because then you like you want to connect everything and you guys already know my temptation is like hey let's slowly go through the bible and see how it's connected to everything everything's connected there's like over sixty-three thousand connections interwoven there's no other book in history like the bible right and we just don't have time for all that, right? Some of you get bored. I would get bored. Like, so you have like 10 pages of notes. Got to refine it to three pages because if you go too long, people can't listen and it's boring. I understand all that. So it's tough. So we're trying to wrestle with that. And this morning, what, what I can't get past is that Jesus and, and John keep emphasizing words and life. There's a famous quote. You might have heard it. Uh, it was pretty popular in the late 90s. Uh, it's the quote, every man dies not every man really lives. Who knows that quote? Raise your hand. What's that from? Braveheart, right? Come on. William Wallace. It's a big moment in the movie. Like, he's going to go die. And that's a big deal because he's, like, been this big, like, military warrior savior guy. And, and this, this girl, she's crying. His love interest is such a big deal. It's like, oh, you can't go die. And he just so stoically says... Every man dies. It'd be cool if I had a really great Scottish accent off the cuff. You know I'm much more into the Brit accents, but it says every man dies, not every man truly lives. There's something about that that intuitively appeals to us because we know that we've talked about this before. You have life, and then you have life, and you have life, and you have life, right? Right? It's a tension. And if you just look at what does it mean to live, all of us would have a different answer. All of us would say, like, we want this for our kids, or we want this for this person. Or if we say someone makes a mistake and they end up in prison for this life, man, that's not the life that they should have had. Or, or if someone's life gets taken too soon, man, that's not the life we would want for them. There's a difference in life that all of us have some boundary for. And so when we have this idea, man, not every man lives, we understand. Those of us who are older certainly understand. You look back and you think, you know, I do some things differently. Even the most arrogant of us that think we've lived perfectly up to this point, you'd still do some things differently because you'd want to have more of what everything's perfect because we want more. And so there's some tension of like, man, not everyone truly lives. So, so what does it mean to, to truly live? Those words are, are powerful to us, and that quote ripples. So I see your faces when I mention it, like, wow, oh, people kind of light up with that. And, and I think it, it matters because words are powerful, right? I mean, you remember harsh words people said. You might have a story of, of something someone said to you, some, some really hurtful thing or some really uplifting thing. Words are really powerful. I remember when I was in high school and I was not cool, 
very different than now. Uh, so I wasn't cool at all. I didn't, I didn't have many friends, but I, I joined a new youth group, and I was just the funniest guy in the world to them. So I had like the new guy swag going on. Like everyone thought I was neat in this youth group for a little while. And there was a moment where the coolest guy around, I, I've just almost dropped his name. Nope, don't do that because, man, the internet will find you. But this guy that I knew, the coolest guy around, his girlfriend uh, did, didn't quite like me like everyone else did, and, and I never quite kind of figured it out. And I was talking to this guy at one point. I was like, man, hey, do you want to hang out? And he's like, well, my girlfriend, she, 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 she doesn't really want to hang out tonight because she, well, she, she says, David's a spoonful person. We can only take David in spoonfuls, is what she said. You laugh. This is like the biggest trauma of my life. Wow. I saw a few of you empathetically look at me in love, and then I saw all of you laugh. So I don't know what to do now. I didn't expect that reaction. Got to read more Bible. I'm upset now. Anyway, no. So I've carried that. I mean, that's a big deal to me. It's a, it's a kind of a, a core reality to me. Like, oh man, maybe I'm, maybe I'm too much for people. Maybe I'm, whoa, don't do this. Don't do that. I constantly am evaluating my relationship with people because I don't want to be too much. I don't want to be not enough. That's all of us, right? But I don't want to be too much because, oh, David's a spoonful person. You can only take David in spoonfuls. And some of you who have sat with me long enough and just felt my extrovertness suck you dry. That's why you're laughing. You're like, okay, David's a bit, he's, a, he's got a lot going on. I'm on prednisone today too, so it's just like, you don't even know what's going to happen. Got a lot going on. I also remember uh, last Wednesday, I was in the ER. <gasps> no, don't do that. Like, I had to go over there because I had to get a CAT scan and they wanted to make sure that my pneumonia wasn't destroying my heart. And so like, I was sitting there and it turns out I have this really cool skill. I can make my heart rate just plummet. Like I was reading a commentary because I'm extra Christian, right? So I'm sitting in the ER reading a commentary and like my heart rate would just rest between 41 and 43. Uh, well, I'd say about 43 and 45, right? And that's really low. And I could get it down to 40. Like if I just really decided I'm just going to keep reading. And what would happen is anytime it would drop below 45, it would beep loudly and go red. Are you med anyone medical in here? You know this. It's, just, it's obnoxious. And so like I was getting annoyed, but I already knew I had a low heart rate because my doctor told me. And so this, this doctor lady in the air, she poked her head in and she said, uh, don't worry about that. I'm not worried about that. You're young and athletic. <laughs> doctor, excuse me. I told her, ma'am, I'm going to hold on to that for months. Like, you don't even know. And she's like, well, you're my age, so I feel like we're young. And I was like, okay, okay, that's, that's fine. I'm kind of in the middle right now, right? It's like, ah, am I older? I don't know where I'm at right now. Uh, I'm still young for a lot of you, so you can check it. But it, my doctor, I put that on my doctor note, right? I'm young and athletic. I'm a spoonful person, but I'm young and athletic. This is it. This is it. But words have power. And why do words have power? We're going to come back to this. This all connects. Words have power because they express reality. And we could talk to philosophy about this all day long, but it's pretty easy conceptually. Like, you can have a Spanish word for something, a sign word for something, an English word for something, a Hebrew word for something, but words are just how we express our concept of reality to communicate what we understand to be reality. This is what words are. And so when someone says words to you, when I say, Jimmy, that's a, that's a heavy word, man. I don't just mean the literal words you spoke bear weight. That, that's, that's in the realm. But what I'm saying is conceptually what you're saying, the, the reality you're expressing holds weight to me. Words are powerful. My favorite verse in the Bible, John 6, 63. Jesus says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I've spoken to your spirit and life. 
This verse I've held tight to through addiction, through many brokenness, through many anger fits, through many struggles in my life, because it's one of the truest things that I can condense my entire understanding of reality down to. It is the Spirit who gives life. My flesh has no help. The words of Jesus are spirit and life. Let's pray. God, as we look to you and we wrestle through what, what it means when, when Jesus has told us to, to eat his flesh and drink his blood and, and wrestle with these things, we pray that your spirit would guide us. You tell us that your spirit will teach us all things and bring to remembrance all things Jesus taught to us. We pray in the power of your spirit that you would bring clarity now to us, that your word would bear its weight on us, that we would take these hard words, these hard sayings, and lean into them. And by your grace, by your love, by your drawing, that we would be near to you, that we would be saved by you, that we would have your life, eternal life. Thank you for your love for us and bringing us each here. Amen. I'm going to read parts of John 6, and we're going to unpack it because we kind of need to, to get to the punchline, John 6, 63, and then the second punch. There's a one-two punch here, if you will, if you're a boxing person. John 6, 63, and then Peter has something to say at the end that we're going to land on that's pretty awesome. Um, if you're really interested at the end where Jesus says that one of you is a devil, man, that's a really cool verse. Uh, not today. We'll talk about it in life group maybe or another time, uh, but it's really interesting. But let's start in verse 51 and read a chunk of this. Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the whole world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They're so frustrated. What a weird thing. Like, come on. That's a weird thing. We, we over-spiritualize and sanctify and Christify this so quickly. But just think, Jesus, this rabbi teacher that they're looking towards, he's claiming his sigh. All of a sudden he says, you've got to eat me and drink my blood. Like, whoa, hold on. So they're disputing. What does this mean? So Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. You have no, what does that imply? That you don't have life in you if you haven't done these things. It's, it's pretty simple, right? So, so maybe you don't have, if they're disputing, they don't get it. Maybe they don't have life in them. Whoa, that's a pretty offensive, harsh thing to say. I don't have life in me. Excuse me, sir. Verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I'll raise him up on the last day. We talked last week about this. Consistently saying, I'm going to raise you up. I'm going to raise you up. For my flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. And I am him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is hard stuff. Like you just, you, this, this isn't something you just randomly quote at like a wedding or a funeral or something, like when you're trying to really just get a one-liner. It's just really tough to just hear out of nowhere, hey, Jesus, you remember Jesus? I mean, you can go ask people on the street, you remember Jesus? You remember when he told us to eat his flesh and drink his blood? <laughs> Fall is coming. Whatever, you know, it's like a weird thing. And to me, maybe I'm just broken and millennial and weird, but you immediately start thinking of like these horror vibes, zombie, vampire, flesh-eating blood stuff. That's what comes to mind because this is a, a human saying, eat my flesh, drink my blood. It's important that we note here that none of these listeners were so dense that they're jumping to cannibalism. Some people teach that. Some people want to really talk historically. No one in the synagogue is like, wait a minute, is he a cannibal? That's, that's not, that wasn't on anyone's mind. And, and there's several reasons why. Uh, although that controversy came up later, right? Um, uh, the Lord's Supper was kind of a, a controversy in the early church where people were like, uh, um, 
pushing down on the early church saying, hey, no, these guys are just a bunch of cannibals gathering, right? They're, they're thinking they're eating the Messiah. And, and that was later on. Um, here, we also, we want to make this maybe all about the Eucharist, the Lord's, sorry, we don't say Eucharist here, the Lord's Supper, right? Um, we want to make it about that, right? But that's uh, still quite not there. If anything, this verse sheds light on it later when you know the whole picture. But Jesus wasn't quite foreshadowing that either. If no one's thinking about cannibalism here, and, and we can't just write this off as, oh, that's just Lord's Supper language for the Baptist later on. That's, that's no there's something else going on here. What's going on? Well, we already have tons of prophetic language in John 6. Uh, and I think pointed out when Adam was doing uh, the feeding of the 5,000, when Jesus was walking on the water, there's all these allusions to the prophets and to things they said. Isaiah 54 was quoted earlier in verse 45. Isaiah 52 and 53, the suffering servants all over this. Uh, Peter has fra- a phrase later on at the end that's directly pulling from several verses in Isaiah. Uh, here's what I think's on their mind, just most likely. Jeremiah 15, 16. Jeremiah says, Your words were found, and I ate them. Right? Have you ever eaten someone's words? Eat it. Come on, you know what? You get the, you get the analogy here. I, and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy. Revelation 10, when the angel is, is uh, appearing to John, he says to eat the scroll. He doesn't, he's saying to consume it, literally take it in. Right? And, and he's eating it, but the idea is that you're consuming it. Uh, Augustine of Hippo, he wrote, Believe, and you have eaten. So you start understanding this concept. Jesus is saying something about consuming, to take it fully in. Take this on. Consume this because it is truer bread. It is truer water. He's already, Jesus has already said that he's the water of life, right? Now he said, he said there's a bread of life. And he's saying there's something about what it means to exist, life in itself. One of the most basic fundamentals of life is you've got to eat and you've got to drink. And Jesus is saying, unless those things are somehow connected to me, you don't have full life. Maybe if you're just thinking water and bread, you're missing the depth of life. Like maybe there's something deeper, some objective source, some floor, something beneath everything that's holding it all up. If you don't fully take in Jesus as you would need food or drink, then it says you will have no life. Again, we all think that we understand life. We have some boundary for it, and we want to teach each other, man, this is, this is life. This is what it means. Uh, we recently got a dog and, and have a puppy, and like, I want to teach this dog how to have life in our family. Don't be obnoxious. You can't pee on the floor. You have a place you have to go when I don't want you around. Those sorts of things. The dog doesn't control my family, right? We're just like, hey, hey, you, you have to exist in the family. This is a better life for you if you exist in the boundaries. If you do whatever you want, it's going to cause problems. It's going to wreak havoc. There's boundaries that we understand life to come in. But Jesus is stepping in and he's saying, you know your perception of life, what you eat and drink and all stuff? Unless, unless you're looking to me, there's no life in it. There's no life in your life apart from me. We quote it often, but John 15, 5, Jesus says it really clearly, apart from me you can do nothing. And so this is causing great offense. Not only is it offensive because, you know, the law of Moses had told them, uh, hey, don't, don't eat things with the blood in it. Like, like that's uh, uh, eating, even eating meat with the blood still in it or, or other people's blood that was, that was meaningful and sacred and makes you unclean and that's because blood is, is life. But also it's interesting, so often it's, it's taught very quickly that, well, it's because blood was life and that's a deeply meaningful thing. That's true, but also so typically in the Old Testament, if you go through and you read when blood's mentioned, so often blood's mentioned as a intense death. There's something specifically connected to a violent death, whether it's sacrificially or just someone being brutally killed. Their blood is being spilled. And Jesus is saying that it will be his life, his blood, his flesh for the life of the world. So he says in verse 51, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. He says he will raise up, have eternal life. So verse 60, 
When many of the disciples heard this, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Hear that, hard saying. The word there in Greek is rhema, right? And, and it's the same word for word, right? And it's kind of like the word logos. And, and they connect, John uses these words often interchangeably um, and, and has different punches for them. But the idea is Jesus is the word. He's giving words and now they're hearing a hard word. John wants you to connect. If you're, if you're, with, me, if you're with me, say word. Word. Are we, word? We got it? And so that Jesus is saying these words to them, and then they're like, bro, these are hard words, hard saying. Who can listen to it? The gospel is offensive at its core, and it must be offensive. Hear me, this is so important because we're so concerned with making everything fit and making everyone comfortable. But then we read the life of Jesus and that just doesn't seem to be what he's doing. He doesn't seem to be going around making everyone comfortable. He's bringing peace, but he's bringing peace through his truth, through his word. He's bringing life through his word, through his actions. He's bringing the spirit through, through what he's doing, but, but he's not specifically making everything comfortably fit. The gospel's so offensive because it fundamentally goes against the narrative that, that I'm in control, that I get to do whatever I want, that everything comes back to me. When we're wondering specifically in John 6, why are they so offended? I want us to go back and look at a couple things. Uh, you know, they're, they're offended here what Jesus says. If you look back in verse 26, Adam read this a couple weeks ago, but they were offended because they were just seeking their bellies to be full of food. Jesus says, you're seeking me because you ate, and you, fill, uh, and you ate your fill of the loaves. That's why you're here. You want more bread. You're hungry. You want a Sammy. That's why you're here. That's your motivation. Uh, that's one reason, though. Their bellies are full. They want a political control. Man, this verse, I love this verse. We, we lean into it some, but in verse 15, they said that Jesus left before he even walked on the lawn and stuff. Why did he leave? He left because they were trying to take him by force. Why were they trying to take him by force? To make him king. Isn't that interesting? What an Israel thing to do. What a human thing to do. Hey, you're what we want. Let's ascribe you. We will take you by force. We will put you in power because then we have power. <laughs> then we'll be in control. They just want political control. Bellies are full of food, political control, manipulative miracles. Verse 30 and 31 unpacks this uh, idea. They say, what sign do you do? Prove it to us. We want to see and believe, so you got to prove it to us. This reminds me of all the false gospels, the adulterations or the twists that happen. Like, like you're hearing things that we say on Sunday, and we, we try so hard to push everything back to the gospel. That's why we say Jesus is everything. And so we constantly point up there and say, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. Jesus is everything. But there's some people who say, no, no, no. It's Jesus plus something else, and it deceptively hides. Time Mag Magazine recently wrote an article called, Does God Want You to Be Rich? Does God want you to be rich? 21st century Western Americas, does God want you to be rich? It's a tough question. Don't holler out yes or no, because it's controversial. It's tricky, right? Does God want you to be rich? In the story, they discovered that the four biggest megachurches in the country... Three were prosperity gospel churches, and one was what they call prosperity light in the uh, article, which is funny. Uh, prosperity light pulpits was the phrase. While they don't exclusively teach that uh, God's riches want to be in believers' wallets, it's still a focus of the prosperity light church. But the in, in general idea of prosperity gospel is if following Jesus, then you obtain X thing, um, and not just eternal life, um, not just um, the spirit, specifically health, wealth, 
enjoyment. Uh, there's many versions of this. I remember in the 90s, the Way Down Workshop got really big with Gwen Chamblin. Um, there's certain parts of, uh, there's all sorts of um, documentaries you can watch about Christians taking scripture, twisting it, and it's still coming back to, because I do these things, then Jesus is making me awesome. I have wealth, I have health, I'm skinny, my muscles are bigger, whatever. And so in this article, they directly quoted a famous television preacher, uh, Joyce Meyer, and she said, who would want to get in on something where you're miserable, poor, broken, ugly, and you just have to muddle through it until you get to heaven? I believe God wants us to have nice things now. God wants us to have nice things now. This these false disciples, these tensions uh, that we're seeing here, their bellies full of food, political control, you see a, a common theme, even back all the way through Israel. We, we, we preached through Judges, and we talked about how they did what was right in their own eyes. They constantly, why did they mix the Canaanite gods? Why did we constantly have, have Ashroth and Baal and all these things going on? Because to their perception, they were supposed to have X. And, and if God wasn't going to do it on their time, then they needed to control God. And so if I could have Yahweh plus these other things, then I will get what I want. I'm in control. It all sounds exactly like Genesis 3. You could be like God. You could decide good from evil. False disciples come to Jesus to get something they want from him. Genuine disciples draw to Jesus by the Father in love so they may trust in him completely and have life. These people were offended by Jesus because he was claiming to be above all things, above Moses, above, above their perception of life, and they didn't want that. They didn't want to trust him completely. Giving up our personal perceived sovereignty is hard for us. It's challenging. And, you know, we get up here every week and we talk about it and we wrestle with it, but, but it really is. Like when we say these, these catchphrases, look to Jesus, Jesus is everything. These aren't cute memorial tribal answers. Like this is the perception of the reality that we base level know beyond all things. There are parts of our lives where we don't look to Jesus. There are parts of our lives where we don't believe Jesus is everything. And that's where brokenness, where sin, where the world, the flesh, and the devil, as we talked weeks ago, keep inserting themselves to draw us away, to corrupt us. We get to verse 63. Jesus says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. When Jesus says the Spirit gives life, those who would hear it would understand, and, and, and you've heard this before, that, that the Spirit was hovering over the waters from the beginning, and, and Spirit is, is co with the Lord, creating, uh, creating uh, order from chaos, right? And the Spirit is, is from the beginning giving life. We read in Ezekiel and in Jeremiah and several prophets that the Spirit is going to be inserted. Last week we talked about Him giving you a new heart, and every time He does that, it's His Spirit that He's putting into you. He's doing something. His Spirit's coming into you to give you life. Jesus already said in John 3 that there's a new birth that's essential, and that's water and spirit. We talked about that. John told us that Jesus bears the fullness of the Spirit. John 1, 32. It's the Spirit that gives life. Why is that so important? Well, Jesus tells us. It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Our proclivity is to look to the flesh, to what we can do, how we can do it, what puts it on us. The flesh is no help at all. For, for my life, it's so tough to talk about uh, things like addiction and anger and, and hurting and controlling others because in some ways, you know, an addict's never stopping. I'm, I'm 
not really much further from it than I feel like I was 10 years ago. Any, any moment could fall right back into it. And those of you who've been through addiction know that it's just, it's right there, always. And the same thing's true with anger. You know, I'm not less of a hothead than I was by the grace of God, his power in me. Sure, but, but it, doesn't, it doesn't change that there's a flesh compelling in me to still be in control, to still be angry, to still gain rightness and power and control and authority through my anger. There's still a desire in me to control, contrive, and to manipulate others. Maybe because I, I, I'll be good enough for them or I won't be a spoonful person. I'll always be this perception of athletic and young, whatever it is. There's some perception I have. And Jesus steps right in and says, no, your flesh is of no help. And if, if there's very little else you hear this morning, I would hope that that bears its weight on you. Because the world I've grown up in, the world I live in now, is everything's telling me that, that my flesh is everything. What I consume, what I do, how I work, the, the, the financial gains I make, the way that I structure things for the future, the way that I do things now, uh, the fitness routines I do, the health plans, the way I count my macros, uh, the sleep patterns I go through. These are real things in my life that happen. That's what really counts. Got to get those things. And Jesus somehow steps in and reminds us there's something about your flesh your desire to, to just have political control, manipulative miracles, bellies full of food, whatever it is, that, that really is of no help because it's the Spirit who gives life. When flesh is the focus, our offenses, our rebellions, our lies, they surface and that becomes our go-to thing. Jesus goes on to say, the words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Go back with me. If you were to just read Genesis 1 and 2, like, what would you understand about God? I mean, he, there's chaos and disorder in the world. And what does God do when he creates? Does he, does he spit? Does he... What does he do? He speaks. He says words. That's actually very significant in Hebrew. There's sets of seven and sets of ten. We've talked about that. But it's a big deal. Like, like there's something deeply significant about his words. And God speaks life from the beginning. And we've talked about ruach, how he breathes his spirit into you. That's for another time. But God speaks from the beginning. Then later on we see in Deuteronomy 8, it says that man doesn't live on bread alone, live on the word that comes from the Lord. There's something that sustains you beyond your perception to sustain yourself. Jesus says the same thing to the devil. Satan's tempting him. He says, hold on, I don't live on bread alone. I don't need to fashion this into bread. There's something beyond me that sustains me. There's something above me. If we could just suspend for a minute, maybe your efforts, your control, your perception of life, maybe the words that you'd even define, maybe it's limited. Maybe you don't fully understand that there's something else there. Jesus says his words are spirit and life. The word spirit's so interesting here because it foreshadows, doesn't it? Later on, we're going to get to John uh, 14, 15, 16. He starts talking about the spirit coming, and we quote this a lot because I, I want you guys to memorize this. So I want you to hear it. When you think of the Holy Spirit, there's all sorts of things you can think about, and that's great. There's, there's gifts of the spirit. There's power in the spirit, Acts 1 and those things you need to grip tight and understand them and walk in them and, and not grieve the spirit, right? Don't give the devil foot. All those things are so important. I never want to minimize them. But if I could say, hey, memorize this about the spirit, I'm going to go with the the words of Jesus, because Jesus said something that continues to ripple in my core about what the Holy Spirit means. Jesus says in John 14, 26, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, meaning bearing all of who Jesus is in my name, he will teach you all things, say teach you all things, and he'll bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. Say remember what Jesus said. 
He will teach you all things, and you'll remember what Jesus said. Now, how many troubles in your life come because you don't know something, you don't know what you don't know, and or you're not remembering the words of Jesus? Welcome to brokenness. And then Jesus says, hey, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit in my name. The Father's sending in my name. It's going to teach you all things. Bring to memory everything I've taught you. Acts 1-8 tells us there's power in the Spirit. The, the words that Jesus shared, His words are spirit and life. Jesus is saying that He's God. He's got the power of God, the life-speaking force. He's the Messiah. He says He's water, He's bread, He's life, He's everything. Jesus is everything. Say, Jesus is everything. This deals with all the tensions that we have. This deals with, with all the things that say, now I, I want to be God, I want to be in control. So you realize, man, I, I can't. I can't handle these things. Something else has to happen. I think it's interesting to compare. In verse 53, Jesus reminds us, unless you fully trust and embrace in me and my life and death for you, and unless you eat my flesh, drink my blood, all these things he's saying, unless you do that, you have no life in you. And then in 63 he says, my words are spirit and life, not your flesh. My words, spirit and life. You don't have life in you. Whatever your perception of life is, it's limited. When we start talking about words and life, I, I think to some degree this is helpful. Maybe not. Maybe it's just in my brain. But you have this like sphere of what it means to be alive and, and what you understand. And so maybe you're a mother. Maybe you are an artist Maybe you're David Newton. Say David Newton. Don't do that. Uh, so like, um, like whatever you, so there's other people in here. There's Sarah Moss Applesauce. There's Tom Fick. Whatever it is, right? There's all these people on there. Please say Applesauce after Sarah Moss every time we're trying to make it a thing. So you've got these things. And this is your percent. This is life. This is reality. This is what it means to be those things. The word in which, when I say I'm David Newton, those words mean this perception of reality. And I can add other words to that, right? I'm, I'm a disciple. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a pastor. I'm a business owner. Or I'm a whatever, the strongest person in the room. Not, I don't know, it's a whatever. Like those sort of things we add to it. But now think about this. Your perception of that. If this is the fullness of those things, this is the fullness of being a mother. This is the fullness, 100%. This is the 100% of the artist you're supposed to be. It's 100% of the teacher you're supposed to be. 100% of the stay-at-home mom. 100% of, of the bank accountant, the doctor, whatever it is. 100%. What? What percentage would you say you are right now? And even at the end of your life, what percentage would you hit? Like for me, it's like, man, I mean, I'm, I haven't figured out everything. 37. And, and gosh, five years ago, I feel like I'm a lot further than I was five years ago. So that means oh, I probably maybe got a long ways to go because I certainly haven't arrived. So where would you fill this in at? Would you, would you draw the line here and say, I'm about 30%, y'all. 30% through my life. 30%, is that right? 37 times three? Oof. I live for a long time. Let's do it. Let's do it. No, no, Keith. I'm young and athletic. So, um, uh, so you'd say this, or, or whatever, pick your thing. You're an arborist and you understand trees. What percentage of that do you know? Now, all of a sudden, your words come in and say, this is my life. The words that I understand about life, this is my percentage. What is this? How do you know? How, say, how will I know? 
this question ripples through all of us and it guides so many things we do. We've talked about how we get stuck in our amygdala and we always come back to fear because we're constantly trying to have these fearful things that we're trying to cover and then that leads us to control and then that leads us to escape. I've got to escape the fact that I'm afraid and I can't control anything. So I love porn and drugs and alcohol, whatever it is. Or I just love to control people. Or I like to yell at my husband. Or I like to, whatever the tension is, right? And this is why. Because how will you know? And it raises this huge existential question of like, I kind of understand being a dad, but I'm also kind of bad at it sometimes. How will I know? I think I'm growing in gentleness, but I'm struggling. How will I know? These words are limited. Our understanding's limited. And Jesus steps into it. Hear me. He says, your flesh is not helping. It's the spirit that gives life. Do you want to know the spirit? Listen to my words. My words are spirit and life. The big question mark that you don't understand about being a mother, the big gap that you have in being the artist you're supposed to be, the big gap in your future is that you're thinking that it's on you. And Jesus shifts. This is what we mean when we say in Christ, right? In emails, I say in Christ, or I write things for our church and we say in Christ. I remind you when you're suffering, hey, we're all doing this together in Christ. What it means to be in Christ is that there is a fullness there beyond me that I don't understand, that I don't get. Jesus wants you to know that he has life. He is life. We do not. We have death. We have sin. We have brokenness. We need his life. Jesus in his flesh took on all of this flesh that we don't understand, all the brokenness, all, all the corruption there. Jesus took it on so that we could have life. You would say, how has Jesus given me life? What does that even mean? First Peter helps us. First Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. When Jesus is saying that his flesh will save the world. He's telling you that the brokenness of your flesh, the things that are limited, your flesh is of no help because his flesh is everything. He had to take your flesh that is not helpful, take it onto himself so that you could have life, so that you could have spirit and life. Verse 65, and he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. We talked about this last week, about, about how he draws us in. But you've got to remember, in this story, you see it happen. Like, Jesus says something, and they're like, ah, what? Come on, man. And then he says something, and they're like, what? I don't, come, like, they challenge. And he says it again, and he's constantly reteaching and redefining, and sometimes making it more difficult, it seems, but he's still, Jesus is leaning in, and, and as he's leaning in, he's allowing them to question, to wrestle to doubt. He's not going anywhere. He's there with them, and what happens in verse 66? After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him gloom and doom. Jesus is leaning in, answering. He even deals with, he says, hey, you're only here because you want your bellies to be full. You're only here because you want political power. You're only here because you want to manipulate miracles. You don't get it. You've got to take in my life. Trust in me. And they say, we, I, we don't get it. It's a hard teaching. He said, I'm telling you, the Father's got to draw you. Jesus is there with them. Jesus is there with you now. Your doubt, your skepticism, your struggle. He's telling you to lean in. He's not the one walking away. Then you have this verse 66, they walk away. How do we approach hard teachings in the Bible, church? Do we ignore them? Do we twist them? Make what we want out of them, like the prosperity gospel or whatever it is to fit into our notions? Start wrestling with things, kicking each other out? How do, what do we do with these things? Or do we lean into Jesus? If we lean in and follow Jesus, 
What typically happens, we keep pushing these hard teachings, people are going to leave. That's going to happen. John, 1 John tells us they went out from us because they were not from us. Like We, we know that's going to happen. People are going to find offense because the gospel friends, they're going to push back and say, ah, this doesn't fit in my skim. It doesn't fit. See this question mark here? No, it's still me. I got to get better. I got to know because I ultimately know. The, qu- the answer to how do I know is me. And so they, they leave. They push back. It doesn't change what's true. It doesn't change what's true. They leave because they're not, a from, from, uh, they're not with us. Here's what I think is so interesting. The disciples understood this more and more along the way. Actually, Peter's going to tell us that directly. But you think the disciples made more sense of this at the Lord's Supper? Yeah, there's some connection, right? Although this isn't specifically about the Lord's Supper. There's some sort of like, whoa, hold on. You, you're telling us this is your blood, this is your body? Wait a minute. And then all of a sudden when Jesus resurrects and he stands before them, resurrected, not resuscitated, not like poof, magical. No, he's, he's resurrected, made new. And now all of a sudden, like, wait a minute. This is everything. Hold on. Now it makes more sense. In my experience of following Jesus, I don't have all the answers. I do find a peace that is somewhere beyond ignorant, blind faith that has no rationale and is somewhere in the realm of, hey, there's a sensical reason why God's doing what he's doing. And I can find that through consistency of what he's done, what he said, because it turns out Jesus meant it when he said his words are spirit and life. So here it comes. This is the conclusion. What happens? Like, what, all these disciples leave. It's a super sad verse in the Bible. John six sixty six. Oh, all the disciples left him. All these people are leaving. That's such a bummer. That'd be so terrible in our church. What if right now, like right now in the sermon, you guys are like, this is awful. The messages you're teaching are bad. It's hard. So we're going to turn back. And many, whatever definition of that is, many of you just walked out. I'd be sad. I'd be kind of bummed, right? Verse 67. So Jesus said to the 12, because assumingly the 12 didn't leave. Do you want to go away as well? Y'all going away? What are y'all doing? Calls them out. What are you guys going to do? Simon Peter, here it is. Here's the meat. Get hungry. Verse 68. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? What would we do? Where else? Are the implication is, what else is there? Hold on. He goes on. Where should we go? What else is there? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. When he says Holy One of God, it's another Isaiah connection. Isaiah uses the phrase Holy One of God something 25 times uh, in all of the book of, of the scroll of Isaiah. And then also in Isaiah, just the idea of holiness in general of God. The fact that God's utterly unique, set apart, nothing like him. Hallowed be your name sort of stuff. He uses that word over 65 times. It's a big deal in Isaiah. When Peter's saying, you're the Holy One of God, Peter's connecting, you know all that prophet stuff that I've been learning since I was a youngster? That's you. You must be everything that Isaiah wrote about. You must be the Holy One of God. And this profession, this, this final phrase of this exchange, there's some information John gives us after this, but, but this phrase tends to be a helpful cap to this whole discourse. He says, Lord, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we've believed and we've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Nothing like you, utterly separate, above everything else. There's two responses to those who trust, believe, 
What does it look like to believe? We're constantly talking about this. We could have shotgunned a ton of verses. I started to make a slide for it. And it's like, you guys don't want to see a slide of all the times John's used the word belief up to this point. But we've heard him say over and over and over, believe and you'll have eternal life. You don't have life of the ages. You don't have the life you ought have. Why? Because you don't believe in Jesus. There's something about Jesus that fundamentally transforms this big gap that you don't understand, which is everything, could redefine everything, certainly transforms, defines everything. So there are two things we see in what Peter says. First, we must know Jesus. Say, know Jesus. John 17, 3 says, Jesus is praying. He says, this is eternal life. What is eternal life? What does that look like? What does that mean? Well, it's that they know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent, which has a philosophical like baggage to it, like, oh, so eternity is somehow connected with ever knowing him. He's so big that we'll spend an eternity knowing him. Whoa, right? We're not dealing with the philosophy right now, but it's interesting. But Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus whom you've sent. And I think it's so interesting how Peter defines that. He says, and we have believed. Where else would we go? You've got the words of eternal life. We've believed and have come to know. There's some relationship there. We talked about that once. We beat on the drum and stuff, but there's some relationship between we have come to know because we believe. There's something about faith that continues to lead to knowledge. We talked about how the Bible is not first a book of faith. It's actually a book of knowledge, right? I've said this a lot, but it's important. Like when, when Moses was going to throw down his uh, 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 scepter in front of um, Pharaoh, right? God didn't say, just believe, brother. I got you. Believe in me, boo. No, no, no. He says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac. I'm, I'm, all the, I'm the God. You know me. You've heard about me. You have knowledge of who I am. And so we can't have this like, oh, I'm just blindly going to believe in nothing. Faith and knowledge always have some interlap. That's why words have such a difficulty. We have a limitation of language, limitation of knowledge. But Peter here just makes it so obvious for us. Hey, uh, we've believed. And the more we believe, the more we come to know. There's a revelation, there's some knowledge, there's some core truth. Gnosko is the Greek word there. It means to have an intentional, intimate relationship between the knower and the object being known, right? I couldn't say, I gnosko my lamp because I don't intimately know my lamp. That's awkward and potentially sinful. Don't intimately know your lamp. But I can say, I gnosko, I intimately know my wife. I intimately know my friends, and, and clearly there's a difference there, but this is where you get Greek. It's tricky. But the idea is that there is knowledge that has grown in us that's an intimate relationship, not just up here, everywhere. We've believed and we've come to know. If you're going to trust in Jesus, if you're going to believe, you first must know Jesus, that he is everything. Second, we have to trust him completely. What does that look like? I'm saying, what does it look like to trust Jesus? Well, it looks like trusting him completely. Here's the phrase. Where else would we go? You have everything. Where else would we go? There's an acknowledgement here that Jesus is everything. He has eternal life. What if you struggle and doubt? What do you do with that? Like you've got struggles and doubts. You're like, man, you're telling me that I'm supposed to believe and I want to have life, but... You know, I kind of know Jesus. I've heard what you said about him. And I also, I understand that, that I need to trust him completely. What do you doubt? I want you to remember this. We taught this last week, and, and it's a phrase that's so helpful that we see all through John so far. Jesus taught us that the Father is drawing you to believe and trust in Jesus because he loves you. The Father's drawing you. Jesus kept leaning in with these people who are struggling with him. He kept teaching. He kept drawing. And Jesus keeps teaching. It's the Father who's drawing you. Even in your doubts, the Lord's drawing you. Your response is to lean in, to say, I'm not going to just walk away. He's not leaving me. I'm going to lean in. 
There's a beautiful story in Mark 9 about that. That's your homework. You can go read Mark 9. I believe. Help my unbelief. As we move to, what do we do with this stuff? I mean, like, like we've got the, okay, here's the two points. We must know Jesus, and we must trust in him completely. And that's great. Like, where else would we go? How do we understand? How do I know? Well, well, his words are spirit and life. We look to Jesus. That's why we say Jesus is everything. I want to teach you a question that I'm trying to, to say in our family more, and it goes through my head a lot. When I look at the world around me, and, and there's so much we can unpack about when Jesus says that, that one of them is a devil, and the world, the flesh, and the devil, and you see the world, the flesh, and the devil all over John 6, by the way. The political powers mentioned, um, um, the flesh right now mentioned, uh, the devil mentioned the end. But, but there's all these things that are points away. How do we know what, what to do with being a mother, being an artist, or whatever? I like to ask, is there life in it? Like, I, hey, we don't play video games for six hours a day, my boys, because there's no life in it. I didn't, I didn't give up porn in my life because I'd get fired or, or it would crush my wife or because it'd make me just the, the scum of the earth, although those things played a part in it. There's also no life in it. I don't aggressively scream at my kids and, and just verbally abuse them because there's no life in it. And how, how do I know? How would I know what has life? So now we're using this word life again. Jesus says, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help. Your perceptions, your understanding on your own, it's limited. And, and, and hear me, there's a great place. I feel like we always have to emphasize uh, therapy and medications, that those things have a wonderful place. But how would you know when you need those things? How would you know when it's appropriate therapy versus corruptive therapy? How would you know when it's right? How would you know these friends are giving you good advice or junk friends? It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help. The words Jesus speaks are spirit and life. Does this have life in it? I would encourage you as we begin to respond to open your hands and ask these things that come to your mind, these things the Spirit reveals to you, is there life in them? Meaning, are they held accountable to Jesus? Does Jesus, is he intimately connected with your job, with your parenting, with your singleness pursuit, with your frustrations of your fears, anxieties, of your doubt? The only way life comes to those situations is through Jesus. He gave his body, he gave his blood for you. What flesh are we still clinging to? Because the flesh is of no help. If you want to stand, I want to read John 6, 63 one more time. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken are spirit and life. As you move to respond, uh, we'll have people on the sides around to pray with you. If you want to come up here and, and pray and, and you need to make some bold physical action to say, this is a moment that I need to trust in the Lord. I need to believe his words are spirit and life. Come pray with someone. Take that step because God's brought you here today. There's no accident that you're here. Come pray with us. I'm going to pray and then you can take time to respond how the Lord leads. Father, I pray by the power of your spirit that, that you would move in this time as we respond, that you would guide us, that, that we would forget the things that weren't essential and necessary, and that you would just continue to bear weight on us with your words, even your hard words, that we would hear them, and we would find spirit in life as you, you teach us all things, as you bring to memory all things that Jesus has said. Father, we trust in you. Guide us as we worship and as we respond. Guide those of us who step out, who, who need to pray. I pray that you would move in this time. We trust you, Father.